Well, many years ago now, back when TV had like four channels or something, there was a brilliant uh, advertising campaign that some of you, when you were, if you were around for that, will remember. Uh, it was by an investment firm called E.F. Hutton. And so there were all these different commercials that had the same storyline. They ended exactly the same way and with the same tagline. And so it was something like this. The one I remember the best were two friends. They met for lunch at a very, very busy, very loud, very active, very noisy downtown restaurant. And somewhere in the midst of that, the camera angle sort of zoomed in on them. And all of a sudden, you could hear them above all the noise of the crowd. And what they're talking about is money and investments. And one of them, friends, said, well, my broker says, blah, blah, blah. And then the other guy said, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and then what happened? You remember? Everything stopped, right? I mean, everything. People are eating their sandwiches like, you know, it just froze dead still and all the noise, all the conversation, even the music coming over the stereo in that restaurant stopped. It went dead still, dead quiet, and everybody sort of leaned in like this. And you know why? You know why? Because when E.F. Hutton speaks, what happens? People listen. Exactly. Genius. All right. When Jesus talks about money and investments, do we listen? Today, we're going to continue with our study of the book of Luke. We're going to return again to that part of Luke's gospel that he has set aside and devoted entirely to teaching us what it looks like or what it means to follow Jesus. What does it look like to be a disciple of Christ in this area of our lives? Well, that's what we get to hear today. And here's the question. Will we listen? And here is the wonderful and a little bit terrifying thing about money. It's a little different from a lot of other areas of life. The wonderful thing about money is that you can literally, no kidding, calculate your answer to the question. So we pick up our study this morning in Luke 16, beginning in verse 1, where Luke tells us that in addition to everything that Jesus had already said back in chapter 15, Jesus then also said, but to who? Because it matters to his disciples. The reason that matters is because it's pretty clear from the context of this story that there's a great crowd of people gathered around Jesus and only some of them are his disciples. And in fact, when we get to verse 14, which is where we end today, Luke is going to tell us this. He's going to say that the Pharisees, who were what? They were the inveterate enemies of Jesus. We know that. Even now, they're planning his demise. We know that. But how does he describe them? He says the Pharisees who were lovers of money. That's what we're talking about. Well, they heard all of these things that you and I are now about to hear. And notice their response. What is it? They said, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. Who could believe stuff like this? They ridiculed Christ, which tells you something. It tells you, first of all, that in that crowd, just like in this crowd and every other crowd that gathers around Jesus, there are lovers of money and there are lovers of Jesus. And it tells you at the same time that you cannot possibly be both. Now, here's what you can be. You can be in transition. You can be somebody who's learning to love and value Jesus more and learning to love and value money less. You're like, how do I know if I'm that guy? Well, the beautiful thing about money is you can calculate it. You can look at your generosity and ask yourself, am I that guy? But here's the guy you can't be. You can't be the guy who tries to love and value them each the same. That doesn't work. And our Lord will make that clear to us this morning. And so then, in addition to everything he said in Luke 15, Jesus then also said to his disciples, but in the presence now of all these other people who are gathered as well with his disciples, and now he's going to tell us a story that gives us some lessons about 
Money and investments. He says that there was a rich man who had a manager into whose hands the rich man then placed all of his great wealth. Now, it doesn't say all of that. I added the last part, but here's why. Because that's the gist of the story. That's what happens in this story. So you have a rich man in this story, just like we do in our story. His name is God. And you have a manager in this story, just like we do in our story. My name and yours. Just insert it. And what he's telling us right out of the gate is that the rich man, in both of the stories, Jesus, mine, and yours, owns absolutely everything. It is a foundational principle of generosity. It is something that all of us need to get our hearts and minds around. And I feel a little bit like a broken record because whenever it is that we talk about this, I inevitably talk about this particular point and I end up saying the same thing, but I think it's worth repeating because every time we come to that point, and that's a major stumbling block for us, we think to ourselves, well, good grief, I don't actually think God does own all my stuff. I mean, I'm the guy that has all the deeds, all the titles. It's all in my name. I'm the one who worked and earned it and studied and risked and all of that stuff. And as I've said in the past, I just want to stop for a minute and go, yeah, but you had to be alive to do all that, didn't you? I mean, that was helpful. You had to have intelligence, personality, gifts, ability, health, energy, determination, opportunity. You had to be born into this family, in this era, in this nation. There are so many things that you cannot possibly even begin to take credit for, all of which are the fertile soil that you tilled that then gave birth to whatever wealth that you have. Look, the Bible makes it unmistakably clear that we don't own a thing. I mean, listen, if you don't think that, then just die and try taking some of it with you. You just have it for a time. You just have it for a time. Jesus says there was a rich man who had a manager into whose hands the rich man placed all of his great wealth. Rich man owns it, manager manages. But, now notice what happens, and charges were brought to the rich man that this manager was wasting his possessions. And I love that statement because it is intentionally, I think at least, ambiguous. Jesus is brilliant. He doesn't tell us how the man wastes the rich man's possessions. He just tells us that he did, and he leaves open the conversation for all the various ways that we can do this. It's like he just collects up every possible way that we can waste the resources of the rich man who in our story is God. And he says, okay, yeah, I'm just going to speak to all of that. So he's intentionally ambiguous about that, but he's not ambiguous about the fact that the rich man owns it all, that the manager does not own a thing. And he's not ambiguous about the fact that this manager has a fiduciary duty. He has a sacred obligation to manage the rich man's assets in such a way as to advance the rich man's kingdom. Does it mean that he doesn't make a good living doing it? No. Does it mean that he doesn't enjoy life? No. Does it mean that he can't have nice things? No. Indeed, because the rich man has been so generous toward him, he gets and has all of those things. But it means that his overriding concern and his primary purpose in every area of his life, time, talent, and in this case, treasure, is the kingdom, the purposes, the plans, the interests of the master who is the rich man. And so then Jesus said to his disciples in the presence of all these other people as well, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to this rich man that his manager was wasting his possessions. And so then the rich man called his manager into his office and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be my manager of translation. You're fired and I want a final accounting of all of my books. And then here's 
the key to the whole story. The key to the story is an understanding that it's going to take some time, not a long period of time, just a little bit of time, but time for this manager to complete this accounting, to turn it in. And that during that little window of time, okay, well, the manager still has the ability, the authority, the power to manage his master's wealth. And so then the question is, all right, what can this guy do with his master's wealth to set himself up while he can still control it for that much longer period of time that he knows is inevitably coming his way as soon as he turns in his final accounting. And that's a question that Jesus now answers beginning in verse 3, where he says, and the manager said to himself, he starts appraising the situation. He says, what shall I do since A, my master is taking the management away from me. B, I have no resources to fall back on. I own absolutely what? Nothing. C, I'm not going to get a very good letter of recommendation. So management jobs are completely off the table from me going forward. And then D, he says what? I am not strong enough to dig. So what does that mean? Manual labor jobs are off the table too. And E, I'm too ashamed or really too proud to beg. So no jobs in management, no jobs in manual labor, and I'm, I'm too proud to, to beg for a living. What's left? One thing. And the question is, will he see it, and will he seize it? And he does. He says, I've decided what I'm going to do, so that when I am removed from management, this little window of opportunity during which I can still manage my master's resources to come to an end, people in this community may receive me into their houses and take care of me for the rest of my life, is the idea. And so then here's his plan. Summoning his master's debtors, who clearly have no idea that he's been fired, who clearly think that he's still operating with the authority of his master, and who clearly think that he's the guy that convinced the rich man, his master, to do this wonderful thing for each and every one of them, summoning his master's debtors one by one. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And the debtor said, a hundred measures of oil, which is the annual yield of about 150 olive trees or three years of wages. It's not an insignificant sum. And so the manager said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly because I don't have a lot of time here, bud, and write 50. So he cuts the debt in half. Then he said to another debtor, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat, which is enough to feed 150 people for a year or seven and a half years worth of wages. Not an insignificant sum. And he said to him, take your bill and on it write 80. All these guys are getting in line, man. They're thinking, holy cow, what kind of a deal am I going to get? And this is a very wealthy man with many, many debtors is the point. And so debtor by debtor, This manager reduces the debt that they owe to his master. He takes the debtors of the master, guys. And in doing this, he obligates them to himself. And the reason that I say that is because it's understood in that culture that if you're generous or benevolent toward somebody, that they are automatically obligated to reciprocate when you call in the favor. And so this guy goes debtor by debtor. He reduces their obligations massively. He indebts them to himself. And he knows that as soon then as he turns in his final accounting and he enters into that much longer period of time that is inevitably coming for him, he's got all these different places he can go live. He's set for the rest of his life. 
And it is a wicked plan, but it is a brilliantly wicked plan, and Jesus agrees. Listen to what he says in verse 8. He says that the master commended the dishonest manager for his dishonesty. Okay, that's not what he says. That's not the commendable piece here. He commends him for his shrewdness, for his wisdom, for his sensibility, for his prudence. He commends him for seeing the situation as it is, the opportunity before him, and then for seizing it. And now what Jesus is going to say is, hey, guys, disciples of mine, lovers of me, there's something to be learned from this guy. You need to do the same thing. It says in verse 8, again, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then he said to his disciples, and again, in the presence of all these other people, including the Pharisees, for the sons of this world, people like this dishonest manager in my story, Jesus is saying, are more shrewd with their own generations. That is to say, they're better at seeing and seizing opportunities that will set them up for the future when they're there to be seen and they're there to be seized than are the sons of light, than are my own disciples. And so then here comes his investment advice. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves. You see the parallel here. By means of unrighteous or worldly wealth, that is to say by means of the wealth of the rich man in your life who is God and who has given you absolutely everything you have and everything that you ever will have. It's from his good hand. During this little window of opportunity called my life and yours, You've got a shot here to set yourself up for eternity. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous or worldly wealth so that when it fails, when your little window of opportunity called my life and yours is over and you don't have that ability to manage that wealth anymore, that's gone, you leave it behind. They, meaning the people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ because you use the wealth of your master who is the rich man and who is God to feed them, to clothe them, to house them, to educate them, to heal them, to bring the gospel to them wherever it is that they are. They may then receive you into eternal dwellings, the eternal dwellings that will be theirs and that will be yours in the eternity that awaits the final accounting of my life. End of year. So bottom line, Jesus is saying, A, God owns absolutely everything and we own nothing. We're just managers and that's it. But what a wonderful opportunity it is. If we fulfill the fiduciary duty, if we meet that sacred obligation of taking the resources that he entrusts, and it is a trust to us, and using them to feed and to clothe and to educate etc., etc., to bring the gospel to people during this little window of opportunity that every one of us is in, and we don't know when the window is going to close, do we? We don't. It's like we're in a continuum. We don't know when it shuts, when it ends, where in the continuum we are in terms of how much time do we have. And what Jesus is trying to get us to do, guys, is to see that and then with enthusiasm... (laughs) excitement to seize that, to take hold of that opportunity that we have now to build His kingdom. And at the same time, it's perfectly consistent. It's unlike that story. At the same time, store up for ourselves true riches, of which He will speak in a minute. And so again, Jesus says in verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous worldly wealth that God entrusts to you in this life, so that when it fails because your life is over, 
and you have to leave it all behind. They, those people who came to faith in Christ because of the way that you used those resources may receive you into the eternal dwellings that will be theirs and yours in the eternity that awaits the final accounting of your life. And then he says, and I love this, one who is faithful, watch this, in a very little. Now stop for a minute. What is that referring to? It is referring to all of the wealth that you will ever amass, no matter how great it is. Millions, billions, doesn't matter. It's his way of referring to the wealth of this world and all that it is and all that it has to offer, the whole of it in its entirety. So now, you know what, that's just a little. In fact, it's a very, very little in comparison to what he's holding forth. My goodness. This is not E.F. Hutton speaking. This is God in the flesh speaking. This is not a man who has an infallible knowledge of the economies of this world, but this is a man who has an infallible knowledge of the economy of this world and of that of heaven and of the link between the two. He's holding before us the most opportunistic investment plan possible. But it can only be seen by eyes of faith and heard by ears that receive his word. And so he says, if you have not been faithful, and that which is just a little bit, you know, one who is faithful in very little, he says, okay, is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. And if then you have not been faithful, there it is, in the unrighteous wealth of this world that God has given to you for this little season of time, for his benefit, well then, who will entrust to you the true riches of heaven? That's where the true riches are. And he says, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, he's telling us the wealth that we have here, it's not ours, it belongs to God. It's that which is another's. Well, then who will give to you that which is actually your own? For you'll never die there. You'll never leave it all behind. And so then Jesus closes with this. He says, no servant can serve two masters. There it is. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, he can be in a journey of learning to love one more than the other. And in this area of our lives, that journey can be tracked, literally calculated. But you cannot, Jesus says, serve both God and money. And then again, Luke says, verse 14, that the Pharisees who were the inveterate enemies of Jesus, but here's how he describes them here, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things that now we've just heard, and they said, you know what, that's just ridiculous. They ridiculed Christ. Guys, there are lovers of money and there are lovers of Jesus, and, and you can't be both. When I was a kid, my dad, I think I've shared this maybe in the past, but... Um, as an investment, my dad owned some fruit groves down in the Redlands, and I grew up in Miami, so probably 20 miles north of the Redlands. And, um, and so he owned you know, lime groves, avocado groves, that kind of a deal. And, and what that meant for me, practically speaking, is that some Saturdays, anyway, I would be awakened by him far earlier than I really wanted to be awakened, which would typically have been about 1 p.m. That's when I would have wanted to wake up. And instead, at about 6.45 a.m., I would hear his whistle. And I don't know if your dad has a whistle uh, but my dad has a whistle, like it's unique to him. You go to Walmart, you guys get separated. He does the whistle, you know that it's him, you know, and it's so ridiculous. I can't do it without laughing, so I'm not going to do it. I just, I can't, I get a rash when it, when it occurs. 
just makes, it makes me crazy. But he would do the whistle, and I knew what that meant. It meant get up, get dressed, come down the hallway. You know, my mom would have breakfast, but she would also have a cooler that she'd like fully stocked with sandwiches and Gatorades and all that stuff. And we'd take that cooler, and we'd throw it in the backseat of the car with about three or four machetes, and then we'd head out to one of these groves. And he'd pull up to the gate, and he'd get out, and he'd open the lock and swing open the gate, and he'd drive into the middle of the grove, and then we'd unload the cooler and the machetes, and then he would get back in the car and drive out and lock me in the grove and leave all day. And my job was to take the machetes and to cut down like the brush and the vines and the stuff that would grow up in between the individual trees, because the mower can mow you know, in between the rows of trees, but not in between the trees themselves, and sometimes there'd be crud that would grow up and He's obsessive, compulsive like me, and it drove him nuts. And so that was my job. But when he came to me with the job offer, here was the offer. He said, I'm not going to pay you by the hour. I'm going to pay you by how much work you get done and how good of a job, how well you do your work. So you can sit on the cooler and sweat. It's going to be hot anyway and do nothing and get paid nothing. You can work real fast, but do a crummy job and get paid very little. You can do very little, but do it well and get paid very little. Or you can work hard for this little window of opportunity that you have, you know, from whenever I drop you off to whenever it's convenient for me to come back to get you and do it well and make a lot more money than you would getting paid by the hour. And even at like 13 or 14, I was bright enough to figure out that, you know, that was a pretty good offer. So like when he came to talk to me about this, it got real quiet in my restaurant. He was speaking to me about an investment opportunity, and for the most part, I listened. I saw it. I went after it. I had some tough times out in the grove all by myself. You know, you don't have cell phones and video games, and there was a time when I, I hit something, like I think I hit a branch or something and had a wasp nest. Oh, man, that was unfortunate. It was, it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. I got five bites on my arm, and it blew up like a balloon. You know, and like three or four bit me on the back of the neck. I have never run so fast. Usain Bolt has nothing on me. It was unbelievable. So that was a long day. There was the time that I hacked my initials into the side of one of these big trees, like right next to where he pulls in with the car. So how stupid was that? So I, I didn't get paid a lot that day, but... But I got paid a good amount. It was motivating to me, and here's why. Because there were certain things about my dad that I believed to be true. Like the fact that when he dropped me off and said, I'm going to be back, he would come back. The fact that he would come back. And that when he came back, he would do what he said he would do. He would inspect my work. And then he would compensate me fairly and more than that. I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that he had the, the ability to make good on this promise. He could pay me for my work. Therefore, it was a motivating proposition. What do you believe to be true about Jesus? When Jesus speaks about this topic, guys, infallibly, incidentally, what do you believe? Because he is a man of his word, infinitely more so, than my father, infinitely more so than me or anyone else. And what has he said? Just today, what has he said? Hey, you know what? Newsflash, you don't own any of this. God owns it all. You're just managing the riches of the rich man who is your heavenly father and who has given it to you in grace. Be thankful for it, but don't forget its purpose. 
He has said you have a sacred responsibility. A fiduciary duty, that means something. To manage it in accordance with his plans, in accordance with his purposes, for the advancement of his kingdom. He's told you, you know what? You're somewhere in this short window of opportunity. No matter how long it is, this life is fast. And we don't know when the window is going to close. So there's an urgency. Get at it. And what else has he promised? Well, he's promised that he's coming back, that he'll inspect our work, that he will compensate us fairly and accordingly. In fact, generously, beyond all that we can ask and imagine. And that he has the ability to pay. And he's told me and you all of this today so that we might seize that we might see and seize that opportunity. So the question is, will you listen? And you will be able to calculate your answer to the question. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your generosity toward us in every way, but most significantly by giving us Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the one who is king of heaven and earth, and who forsook all the glory and riches of heaven to come into this earth, that through faith in Him, at the expense of His life, Lord, we, every one of us, might be made rich. God, we thank You for our families. We thank You for our gifts and talents. We thank You for our quirky personalities. We thank you for all the opportunities that you've placed before us, for the families we were born into, even the experiences that have shaped us, that you've ordained the nation in which we live, which is the most prosperous in all the world and has been for some time. God, all of these things, the energies to serve you, the air we breathe, the life we enjoy, we take for granted. We claim for ourselves, I pray that you would break that in us this day and cause us to acknowledge and to worship accordingly the one who has given it all to us. Lord, we have a number of days and you yourself have numbered out our days. They, each one of them is a gift from you and we don't know the number. That is locked up within the counsel of your will. We pray that we might use them well with our time, with our talents, with our treasure, with all of the resources, Lord, that you have, and it is a trust entrusted to each one of us. May we enjoy them to your glory, but may we use them in accordance with your plans and purposes and for the advancement of your kingdom. For God, we do believe that you are coming back that you will inspect our work, that you will compensate us richly, and that you have the infinite ability to pay. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.